everybody, welcome along to another episode of How to Save the World with me, Tim Bat. And Waveney Worth. And a special guest. Dun, da, da, da. Someone I've been hoping to get on the show for a while. We've been wanting to do a composting feature for a long time. And we're uh, spoilt for choice with composters, cool composter dudes in New Zealand. But um, I reckon we've got one of our most inspirational, thought-provoking you don't even call yourself a composter. We've got Leo Murray. Hey. Hey, Leo. Hey. Good morning. Kia How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, really good. Yeah. For a bit of context for everybody, we've cracked open the whiskey at uh, 18 minutes after 10. Yeah. Because I had a bottle of Thompson's, which is a Kiwi whiskey that caught your eye. Uh, What's just, the review? Just made sense. Well, apparently all the malts are grown in New Zealand and the peat is from New Zealand. And, you know, it, it really, it was contextually relevant because... This we're right in the middle of like coronavirus up upscale curve, uh, and by the way, I'm not exactly sure when this is coming out, but we're recording in the middle of March. Got yeah, yeah, and um, 2020, and the it's it just seems that the the kind of uh, cultural uh, homogenous homogeneity of globalization has left us um, quite exposed to just everyday kind of sort of pests and diseases the same way like a field of maize or corn would be needing like roundup. <laughs> yeah, we've become <laughs> a, a monocrop. We've a become a monocrop. That is an out of it concept. It I think, is. yeah, it makes sense. Mm. Because does, I, I don't think diseases rip through plants and animals in their natural environment when they're surrounded by that that sort of cradle of biodiversity in the same way. Really, we're only getting the diseases ripping through anything that's in a monoculture. Mm. You know, we used we like you say we usually think of that in terms of agriculture. But oh my gosh! Um, so you've just to qualify your involvement here today in terms of composting, you are founder and director of Why Waste New Zealand, mm. which is uh, now I think it's had a few metamorphoses, but mm. it's a it's a really growing network of Fully serviced, guaranteed success worm farms, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're offering subscriptions to businesses throughout Aotearoa and uh, it's working. Yeah, yeah. We kind of um, took the, the concept of circular economics, where which has a central tenet of access over ownership as a way to um, take our linear economy, which is all about take, make, produce, consume waste, and that's kind of that's the game, and and sort of bring that tail end and plug it into our sort of secondary or tertiary sectors so that things can become circular and maybe we can stick around on the planet a bit longer. And so, what that kind of looks like is products become services, and you, you've seen mm. that more and more. It's it's a trend that things are that people might have once owned are now going back to be a subscription or a membership. Um, and then an offshoot of that is now that we can start to kind of embody this sort of quality over quantity dynamic that at scale import export economies were steering us towards more life li- life stuff and less lifestyle Ooh, and so yeah. that's kind of the that's the flip on that script that um, why waste is trying to enable at the back end. Um, obviously, there's heaps of work to be done at the front end in terms of like procurement and what's available in a market, and people are going to buy what they buy. But once it sort of goes through their life, that's where, um, yeah, my company's kind of like, oh, we can just sift that there, build that there, do this, do that with that. And so, and, and what kind of people seem to um, jump to is like recycling. Um, and with sustainability, we tend to pick the lowest fruit first, and we've been we've been picking that fruit for like my whole life is recycling glass and cardboard and plastic. But when you when you run the numbers, and I like I've been part of the sort of data collection for a lot of the citywide statistics, and it, you know we'll all literally be sifting through a city's worth of waste by hand, like pe- peeling it out into you know twenty eight. 29 different waste streams to inform the data that this council will then say, hey, this is what was going to waste. Um, So I'm really familiar with how that kind of works. And what's become blatantly obvious is that plastics as a problem is like 
a very, very small percentage of the problem. And then when it goes, does kind of wind up in the wrong place, it's also kind of quite latent mm-hmm. in nature. But one thing that isn't latent is the, pro- is, the pe- is the part of like a pie that's in some places over half, in some places just under half of this like problem that we are throwing away, which is biodegradable waste. Mm-hmm. Right. And that measurement is reflected in mass and in volume. And, and then you sort of qualify these statistics against their impact on the environment. And then you go, whoa, not only is biodegradable waste the largest part of our waste stream, but it's also the part that has the, the most um, detrimental flow-on effects into our ecosystem. It's great to hear you say that because this is such a common misconception. Absolutely. And can I add to that that I think the other thing about um, compost and what's amazing about the space you're in is that it's also one of the most positive um, things that can be done in terms of remediating mm. climate change. Um, it, it goes from being something really negative, like really negative mm. at one end of the scale through to something that's almost about as positive as you can get totally. on the other end of the scale. Yeah. 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 So tell us about that. <laughs> well, it's kind of, yeah, like our tagline for Why Waste is um, minimize waste, build soil, increase community resilience. And that's it. We're taking like this thing that is, Un- undoubtedly bad, which is like biodegradable waste to land for when there's the statistics to say that this is most of our stuff is biodegradable waste. And and then when it goes to landfill, it, it breaks down in an anaerobic environment, so without oxygen. And so it rots and it turns into a liquid form, which is a leachate, which is like going into our water tables and poisoning our water and our soils. And then the other part is methane, which when that gets released into the atmosphere, it's 30 times worse than a greenhouse gas. When I first started saying this kind of stuff, it was around 20, 23, 25. Now the most recent report I read was 30, and it's probably just going to keep going up because they just keep realizing that these other novel gases are actually more detrimental to the greenhouse gas effect than CO2 is. CO2 is just kind of like the boogeyman that we kind of... The, the metric that everything else is compared to. Um, and so that's that kind of piece at the end where you're like, this is kind of like, mm. the, it could be the worst thing. But then you go, well, how does it transform into be the best thing? And it's it's that's the awesome part. That's the part that really gets me excited is that we're actually just, we don't have to come up with like some flash technology and like plug it into an energy grid and a and like a, a crypto network or blockchain or whatever. It's just like, here is a, a million year old process that has been doing this for so long and is so good at it. Um, there's, there's like a, there's microbes in the soil that can totally take this material and turn it back into the soil, which by the way is addressing another massive issue we've got, which is our soil degradation and it's kind of like turning the problem into a solution, and that kind of adage in the in the in the permaculture world is kind of like the 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 Shangri La of design outcomes. It's like when you can take the problem and turn it into a solution, and that solution not just tick the boxes for your human mind, because we often when we design for a pro, uh, a problem, our solution generally only will solve that one problem, but then the flow-on effects of that will be that it creates more problems. We're not very good at holistically right. solving stuff. Totally. And so when we are plugging natural systems into our sort of linear rational systems, we tend to deal on a level of complexity and not complication. And that's kind of something that we can speak about later, but basically humans problem-solving tends to um, take something that is complex, simple, simplify it, reduce it to something that they can measure and therefore declare it to be true <laughs> and then know it and then assemble a solution out of the sum of these parts that they can measure and know to be true and create a complicated system that if a piece in that complicated system decides to not work for whatever reason the whole system goes down and so this is kind of 
in this in this kind of like opposite direction to nature, which takes True. simple systems and makes them complex. Not complicated because the complexity relies within the relationships within the web, the network of the system. It sounds like it's got a bit to do with redundancies. There's not a single point of failure in a complex system, mm. but there isn't a complicated system. Absolutely. Right. Like if you think of just like zeros and ones and they're all a gate of a yes and a no, there's so many places where a, a human system can go wrong. But if, if you imagine it like a, a mycelial network or like even a spider web, if one link on a spider web goes down, the, the, the torsion strength of the web is still able to support the function of that system. And so when we're trying to like pr bring sort of permaculture design solutions into a waste space, it's like, right, how can we take, how can we take this simplified, complicated issue and turn it into a interconnected and interrelated uh, sort of symbiotic complex uh, outcome. Well, let's get specific with it because like what, with your business, what is the product? What do you offer? Yeah, we, so we offer people worm farms on a subscription. So we come around to your house or your business and we set up a worm farm and we're like, we are going, we're the kaitiaki of the worms and of the worm farm, which is, which is a thing, you know, and I'm not that big into things. And so I get the best thing. And if something breaks on the thing, I can swap that out, get it melted down into another thing. And meanwhile, we've replaced the part and that's all kind of like circular economics. There's no kind of like massive redundancy just because the thing has failed. And, and then those worms, they are able to receive human waste and create what's called humus which is like the glue that holds soil together. And so, yeah, that's basically just worm shit. Yeah. And it, when plants get a hold of this stuff, they go crazy. And so that's where the increasing community resilience part comes in because even though we've got all these worm farms out there producing heaps of really high-quality organic fertilizer, we have no interest in that. I... If people don't want it, I take it down to the community garden. I've got like relationships with schools and school gardens. Like my mum's garden's cranking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just I try to distribute that as much as I can because frankly, we just need to like we're all if, – if we were to like redesign society for resilience, I'd say the suburb would be the first thing that we would – get away from the sprawling suburb that necessitates all of this massive infrastructure to provide healthcare, education, work opportunities for all these people over such a huge amount of space. Just the, just the, even the transport needed to like en enable people's lives is just massive. But if we were to go about um, ensuring a, 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 an uncertain future's resilience you don't just knock everything over and start again because that's so much more resource intensive than maybe retrofitting the existing thing. And what is the, the kind of like saving grace of the way that we've built our, our societies and our communities is that actually everyone does have access to a fairly productive, and when I say everyone, that's like not everyone obviously, but a majority of New Zealand have access to a fairly productive backyard that Right now, they're just like keeping nature in a straitjacket by mowing the lawns every day when that could be food. And we're already starting to see people clearing out supermarkets because they're all panicking because of a virus. Now is the time to turn our waste materials into fertility so that we can increase our food yeah. resilience. I've been really thankful for my garden mm. in the last few weeks. Um, I haven't actually been to a supermarket since the coronavirus outbreak. I, that just occurred to me recently, actually. I haven't needed to. Um, mm. It's not that I've been avoiding it. Um, we, have, we just run with a lot of bulk food yep. and um, a garden. And it's actually a really simple garden. And I've just been, as I've just wandering outside and just picking a few herbs and leafy greens, um, yeah. Oh, I'm just feeling so thankful for such a simple thing. So how do we get there? Yeah. And by we, I mean me, the mm. suburbanites, little urban dudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've got a, um, 
I think it's quite typical for New Zealanders to be living how I am, which is in a flat shared house that they don't yep. own. Yep. Um, but we've still got access to some gardening stuff. Mm. I have to confess, I don't know the first dang thing about composting and mm. how to do it well. So mm. can I pick your brain? Tell yeah. me, man, how, how, do I, how do I make a good, effective compost? And then what do I, you know, how do I structure the rest of the garden around that? Oh, here we go. <laughs> Give me the basics. Yeah. Pretend so, I'm six in. years no, old. Notepad. <laughs> <laughs> You've sort of got, um, there's a few different options and they're, they're specific to different contexts. So composting is, I suppose, the, the broadest application. You can kind of throw more stuff into a compost and it, but it, it's more of a science because it needs a certain degree of carbon to nitrogen to have this, the right interactions to bring in the right biology to, to, to facilitate that process of entropy back into soil. And it does take a lot longer and it does take up a bit more space. And I think the reason why urbanly and suburbanly um, composts have maybe come out of fashion a little bit is because, yeah, you know, like they might attract rats or mice and and that's that's a real hangout for some people if they if they're living in a city and they just they, there's just some parts of nature that they don't love as much as other parts of nature and they're like oh that's that that we oh, that's bad weed and that's a bad animal and we're working on that but and so that's why there's and 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 I I believe that composting um, on a community scale is definitely the way to go. But if we're talking about people's backyards and they want things to be tidy and um, yeah, clean and convenient and and fit into their lives, because let's face it, people are really busy. Maybe they've got all these kids and they need, they're in debt and like man, they just all they all they can even really think about. They've only got bandwidth for just how to get to work, and so. They don't really need to be out thinking about carbon to nitrogen ratios and their compost and all the oxygen that it takes and therefore stirring it and turning it and all that kind of thing. So what we're, what we're proposing for people who's, um, who, who really just want to like start somewhere and then with that kind of curiosity and that inspiration that comes from having that interface with that process, because it does, it feels so real and so right and so human once you start kind of like your banana skin stops going in the bin, you go, right, I'm the, I'm just feeling a little bit more human every day. And that's fundamentally what we need is to connect with who we are and kind of like ask ourselves what kind of world we want to live in and then incorporate that more into our day-to-day choices. And so that for me is a worm farm. It's a little bit less of like a method that you need to know about and you can, can go wrong or whatever. It's just you're feeding your food to worms, your scraps to worms. And the statistics on about what we throw away um, from our homes aren't quite as high as those society-wide statistics that I mentioned before. They're more like a third. A third of what we're throwing away from homes is biodegradable. So that can be fed to worms. And what they do is they eat it and then they crap it out and then what comes out the other side is just actually magic for plants. A lot of people, um, they get really big on the, the worm wee, which is like the liquid that comes out of a worm farm. And I sometimes I, I feel a bit nervous about this, but there's a real myth I've got to bust here. Um, because they just think like the, the worm wee is like this magic thing, and it is, but you often see it like sold on a shelf or in a bottle at like maybe a f- school fair or something. And the reason why wormweeze is so great for plants is because it's biologically alive, not necessarily chemically rich. And even though it is chemically rich, it's the biology that makes those ke- that chemistry plant available. And so that's why whenever anyone's kind of like gardening with with vermiculture, worm worm composting, that's their that's their cheat. That's their kind of hack. Is they're actually gardening with life, and not just like different aspects of the periodic table. I assume with the worm, we once you put it in a jar, that's right. That biodiversity within it starts to die off, and that's the effective ingredient. As soon as you put a lid on it, it's like oh. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So there's a bit of a snake oil aspect to like 
a market that's surrounding um, Wormwe. Hardcore myth busting. Like throw that one out there, but but in terms of if you're doing it at home and if you're using it yourself in yes. your garden, um, I have never had green. Well, I never did have green fingers until I started worm farming and with for my pot plants inside, mm. and I've realised that I. I had never really given them any fertilizer, and that's why I just was giving them water and wondering mm. why they weren't thriving. And then I started just going, "What am I going to do with all this wormweed?" And then I've also bakashi. Are you going to get into bakashi? Yeah. And so that's really good for the plants as well. Totally. So just before we get into bakashi, because I think that would be great to get mm. into next, can you just um, speak to what is the like? What does the actual contraption look like? Yeah. What What is What is nice. this thing mm. that is the worm farm? It kind of yeah. looks just like a wheelie bin. It's the same specs, um, same plastic, um, and it has like steel legs. And, and we're talking wheels. about you're talking about a particular brand. I'm talking aren't about you? a particular brand, <laughs> and it's called the Hungry Bin, and it's made here in New Zealand. Um, I've had all the other different types of worm farms, and yeah, none of them are just none of them. None of them really cracked it. This one finally. It's you know it's it's like it's I'm, the a new hungry, millennium. I'm a hungry I'm a hungry bit too. I've know, got one as well. They're I think, awesome. I think yeah, the design of of worm farms just didn't really ever catch up until Hungry Bin, based in Auckland, um, they just pulled it together and um, they they're incredible at what they do. And and if I ever have anything kind of like a problem with my units, or I've got these things like out on the street now, and sometimes they might get vandalized. I just go back to Hungry Bin and be like, hey. Um, there's this piece it's broken they're like sweet chuck it in that pellet it's going to go back and get melted down and so it's back to those circular economics it's like we we're walking the walk hunger bins walking the walk and they're allow, enabling me to walk the walk on product stewardship and that is if we can have more of a sense of it's kind of like um, inviting in a new sense of materialism like we all kind of like lament this materialistic culture, but it's like actually that's kind of the opposite. If we if if we, if we were like true materialists, we would actually value that thing and the journey that it's taken across the world and from the communities that that maybe they essentially gave it to us. Um, it'd be it would be we'd revere it. We'd revere it. There'd be a lot more reverence for each aspect of of somewhere else that has come into our lives and so the way that the languaging that um that the sort of um the thought world of behavior change um is steering us towards is yeah product stewardship and so we are the the guardians of that thing and it seems crazy to think of when you're holding a single-use coffee cup that i'm like the kaitiaki of this coffee cup but it's like if you can't be the steward of that coffee cup effectively, then you're a bad kaitiaki. So don't put yourself in that situation in the first place. And, you know, when you think about, when you look into tikanga and the idea of kaitiaki, it's not something that you go around just claiming that I'm the kaitiaki of this land or something. It's really something that is awarded to you and there's a huge honor in it. And so it's kind of like almost pulls into play like the... A, a grieving the lack of some kind of like social framework of accountability because guilt and shame are just simply not working. I'm not interested in them. The whole ecological movement up until now has basically been underwritten by these feelings. And I feel like, yeah, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of this movement that I'm a part of, but really they didn't quite crack the, the, the psychological side of it. Like I'm really trying to um, lead from like an emergent future where people are acting out of love for nature, not out of fear of what they stand to lose if it's gone or dead or unable to serve their needs. And if those needs are your like coffee fix <laughs> in the morning every day so that, you know, you – you aren't going to be mean to someone at work. <laughs> it's just the whole thing kind of that I've always had a really funny relationship with coffee because I love the taste of it, but I don't love the way that it's used as a drug in our society. I can see how these feelings though feed directly into the 
business model that you've adopted for your company with it being a subscription service. Mm. Because if you kind of have an object that has a specific purpose and newer people get into it, like a worm farm for composting Mm. at home, and they sort of don't know what they're doing and it gets too above their head, but they've suddenly got the uh, sort of guilt of owning that thing or the weight of this big object, this big wheelie bin that's suddenly in their house. Mm. They like tip it or they'll do something irresponsible with that object but by you being the sort of um ultimate owner and guardian of that object and you're sort of Mm. you know lending it out to people you were involved in that circle so if they've got questions and stuff they can go to you and if something breaks as you said you can kind of step in Mm. rather than the uninitiated person it's just getting overwhelming and they sort of bail on the whole thing and and irresponsibly get rid of it Mm. because i'm always or irresponsibly just have it sitting around Exactly. Gathering Doing nothing. dust. Yeah. 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 Um, hey, let's talk about Bokashi. Yes. And did you feel that like you had your 101 questions answered with the worm farming? Are you going to rush out and buy one now? I actually really do want to buy it, or at, at a minimum. So I've got a, um, a like a standard, I guess, compost situation here that we put our food scraps in. Man. And can I just like introduce worms into that? Yep. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. Yeah. They, they probably wouldn't. <laughs> thrive quite so much like what you're really trying to do in a compost is incorporate microbes um and create an environment for them to breed and once they when microbes get going like it's on <laughs> like it gets it'll be crazy in there and so there's there's two different types of of microbes that you want in your compost there's thermophiles and mesophiles mesophiles are like a slow cold compost like what a lot of comp- backyard composts are but if you can get your compost kind of big enough with the with the, with the a ratio that's kind of like conducive to it. You'll get mesophilic bacteria coming in, and they produce. They can eat a lot more material, unlock all these carbon chains, and actually are able to um, take a lot of the kind of like questionable material that comes through humanity and return it back to nature in a relatively mm, safe that's way. That's interesting. Yeah, because I've wondered about that with some of the cardboard that I put into mm. my compost pile about yeah the poisons or whatever the toxins mm. that might be involved with the the yeah. printing on the you mm. know I just haven't been too sure whether it's a good idea or not yeah composting is a really great way f- like a really great reset function in nature and you know we we tend to focus on like creation and 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 building and and, and the actualization of a lot of things but we often forget that in nature the equal and opposite process of entropy is that everything sort of comes down the other side of something and the systems that nature has provided for that are just are really effective. And it's kind of like where if we just got out of the way of it a little bit, it would, it would work just fine. And so, you know, your compost is going to be sweet no matter what. Just there's a few things that you can do to make it way more gangster. <laughs> that is, I think, a really important yeah. thing to drill into people's heads. Yeah. Yes. Is that this isn't an exact, you know, mm. science in the laboratory measuring out your little bits in a beaker. It's it is. It's letting nature do the thing it does best, and you can just kind of give it the fuel, totally. give it the biofuel, and it will yeah. sort it out. Totally. As, as you say, there's ways that you can speed it up and make mm. it more effective, but you can't really screw it up. Mm. No. Yeah, I remember when I grew up, we had a compost, a classic compost heap that nobody did anything. Mm. We didn't know anything. We wouldn't have put any carbon in it, and mm. it was always um, slimy, yep. which is what you'd expect. Yeah. <laughs> you just pile all your food waste into it. But, you know, ultimately, that just sat there forever, and then we eventually used it in the garden, and yeah. it was a way better scenario than putting it in the landfill. Quick question. You were saying before about when the bio-waste goes into, like, landfill for example mm. into these bigger waste streams so there's an interaction that happens where does the the food waste become a bit of a multiplier on the already harmful hazardous stuff that's going into a landfill like can it kind of unlock bad potential there i'm not entirely sure like how accurately i could speak to the way that they kind of like indi- indicate or contraindicate other forms of waste but the biodegradable waste itself, if it's by itself without oxygen, it's it's turning into methane and it's turning into like a toxic leachate. And when you apply that to the scale that these that this waste is hanging around, it is a real concern. Like there's 
there's a whole bunch of other stuff in landfill that's also really concerning, but it's not as necessarily kind of like fungible or transferable mm. out of that landfill. Like, and I think, yeah. yeah, to add what you're saying, that's the, the, it's a conduit. So it, I think it can actually activate a whole bunch of other stuff that would have otherwise sat there because you're basically... Kind of yeah, exactly. It's, 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 not for the food waste. Yeah, the, the, the stuff that has ever been alive, which is the stuff Leo's talking about, whether it's food or even treated timber, or just the receipts that we chuck away, just like, or anything that's ever been alive, the rubber component of a tyre, that stuff is active and that's the stuff it's got carbon in it it's got nitrogen in it that's the stuff that will have a chemical reaction which goes all weird in a landfill because it's not in a natural environment where there's oxygen and because it's so because our landfills are so full of it and rich of it it will as it as it reacts it reacts with all of the other things that are in it like the batteries and all that sort of mm. stuff as well and so i think it it's definitely Without it, we just wouldn't have that soup that becomes very toxic. And the, the, the toxicness of that soup coming out of a landfill wouldn't be so toxic if all of the other things weren't in there, like the batteries or whatever. Yeah, It's like a wild research and development experiment that people are going to go back and mine in 100 years. <laughs> like, Check out this landfill. There's heaps of crazy stuff in it. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. fact that we will be able to go back and mine it, I think, yeah. is a is a positive because we might, you know, we'll end up needing to. And mm. and also just a little comment around waste of energy as well, because I feel like it just sits there for some people when they're hearing us talking about landfills and going, oh well, I've, I've got an obvious solution here. Why don't we just burn it all? Um, you know, at least when it's in a landfill, yeah, sure, it's toxic, but it's not like next level toxic um, and the waste you would have from a waste energy plant once it's burnt um, which is about a third the volume so it's still there quite significantly mm. eh? that's uh, that's yeah. it actually shifts the toxicity of it and and sort of really exacerbates the problem and as you mentioned this was the eye-opening thing for me when you researched our deep dive on the waste to energy episode was that it creates this perverse incentive for us to keep stocking yeah. it up all the time totally. like you don't want to ever reduce the amount of waste you have because yeah. you need to keep feeding this huge fire yeah um to get in there yeah. so can we talk about like indoor solutions and people in yeah. apartments and that sort of stuff yeah so that's where Bokashi comes in and that had emerged out of Japan where a lot of people are living in high density um, situations. And so a Bokashi bin is like a, it's like a bin within a bin and you put everything into the inside bin, which then has holes in the bottom and drips into the outside bin. And when you say everything, what are we talking about? Food stuff? Actually everything. Yeah. In terms of, yeah, if it came from nature, it can go back from na to nature. Um, and whereas like you might have limitations on a worm farm, like, uh, citrus or onions or yeah like meat bones everything goes into a bakashi bin and it actually ferments um it's kind of like yeah you've got like a little brew experiment under your um your your sink there and um it, my experience with it is that it's it's it seems to work for people who have really good routines or maybe have time and space to really do a good job of it um, or who have just the amazing kind of ability to like conform to social norms the way that like <laughs> Japan is able to like when the Fukushima pl plant went down like the, the Jap Japanese government were like okay now no one's about no one's to take the elevator anymore we're short of power and the whole country just were like, sweet, taking the lift. I mean, taking the stairs. And like, I was working in a, a high-rise building at the time and I was like, there's no way any of these people would take the stairs right now. And the same sort of goes for here. Like, I don't think that the amount of kind of like discipline and dedication that it takes to make Bokashi work um, would put it up there as like a solution that I would like broadcast as like, yo, everyone needs to do this. It's the people that I see doing it successfully are retirees, people who aren't actually producing Me. like lots and lots of waste. <laughs> um, and is that because of the speed at which yes. food waste can yeah. be um, biodegraded in there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly slow. Um, it doesn't take a huge amount of volume each day. Um, it's, it's much more suitable to say a smaller family who um, is – kind of like not eat, chopping up like 
like say if you were a family of five and you're, you were vegetarian, you would almost fill the wakashi bin every day. And so that's where I would steer people towards having a worm farm because a worm can eat its own weight a day. And if you've got two kilos of worms sleep. in there, and they don't sleep, <laughs> really? Yeah, they just can you? Okay, I, I think we can throw facts out sometimes and go, oh yeah. But if you just stop and think about that, yeah. eating your imagine you Tim eating your own weight every day of food, yeah. like how hard out that would be. Like you'd have to be just like that is amazing totally. that any any living organism can do that. <laughs> I work with kids in schools and show them. How to grow food, you know, like food comes from the garden, not the supermarket. And that always comes up and they're like, hey, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, imagine if you had like three sacks of potatoes <laughs> and you ate them wow. all in one day. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, that's what the worm's doing. And then they come in with this new kind of respect for the worm because, you know, that's like a heap sufficient chip, say. Eh? <laughs> 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 But I guess that's yeah. why um, that's a solution for people in apartment living is what I always hear because I assume it would fit way more in with their lifestyle where mm. typically less than, you know, five kids running yep, around. Totally. Um, typically mm. don't eat uh, in the house for every single meal as mm. well if it's sort yep. of those inner city apartment um, yep. situations. Yeah, and I just to kind of challenge you a bit on what you reckon in terms of what it will take in terms of volume, like I've – I'm living in a situation now where we get a lot of people through, like mm. hundreds, mm. and um, I've got one hungry bin, which mm. is not enough. I need mm. to get more going. But at the moment, I've just got one worm farm, so that's probably taking about a quarter of our waste. I just, can you speak to how much that is, like in, in, in sort of weight or volume terms? Like how much can you feed through these bins, either of you, actually? Okay, so a really well-working hungry bin or worm farm at capacity. How, two kilos. Two, that's that's pretty much exactly what I would put in, actually. Like, basically an ice cream container full a day. A day? Yeah. Wow. And so the cool thing about worm farms is that uh, you don't need – you know how if you just would have, like, a, a regular box, say, that you would throw two kg of food waste into a day, it would get smelly really fast. Um, the worms eat the food so fast that that whole stage is skipped. It goes from pretty – inform intact looking fruit and veg that you're just throwing in directly through the worm's butt and turns into this incredible soil, right? It, that putrid stage is largely missing. Man, I thought I kind of liked worms before. I love worms out the back mm. of this combo. Mm. So, shit. <laughs> yeah, no, they're really they so are. cute and cool. But so, yeah, we have we have a worm farm that would probably only take about a quarter and we're using Bakashi to suck up the rest. Mm. And we've, we've got um, just one bucket that, like, because with Bakashi, uh, I guess, partly what you're saying Leo about needing to be a bit you're kind of saying you need to be a bit anal really eh, to keep on top of a bit it's a win. system it's a system yeah you need to you need to squash yeah. it down every time you you use it um, and that actually really keeps the the volume going like you could it could be almost full you might just have a centimetre left at the top and I can be bringing like a four litre mm. you know food waste container into it give it a good squash and it's and to be Incredible. totally clear, the process happening in there is bacteria. It's so bacteria doing what the worms would be doing in a worm farm. So yeah, it comes out like quite different. It doesn't turn into that soil. What does it look like, Leo? It sort of looks like a, a grey sludge. Is it a fertiliser? Or do you, well, you know, orange. Does it have I always think of it as quite orange. Yeah. And pickle sort of like pickle. you can still it's see like the food. It's, it's like a pickle flavor. You can see the you can see oranges and yeah. lettuces or whatever you put in, and it's all mm. sort of squished together and like um, preserved looking. Yeah. And that's kind of where, um, that's sort of like the crucial piece of it is like what happens then because you've just say put maybe over the course of a couple of weeks. Uh, 20 or 30 or 40 litres of volume into four litres, which is a very effective um, way of, of treating your waste. But then what do you do with the four litres of intensely pickled, like freakishly intact, still like <laughs> um, scraps? And so in Japan, they have these these things in their like communal garden areas under their apartments where it's like that's where you empty the bokashi bin. And that in itself is a compost or a worm farm. Mm. And so 
it's kind of like the chicken of the egg on the infrastructure, and I don't think so modern we've got one bit of the thinking, chain. Yes, but because we don't have that underlying or that that last stage, it might not be. Well, it would be. It would be very well. It's the same for you with your compost heap here. It's like you've still got a product that you've got to do something with. Um, And if you were bakashiing here as well, it would be you or worm farming or whatever you do. You're still going to have a product, and it's just something like with the bakashi because one of the things people recommend is that you dig it into the ground. Uh, And I just didn't have the time or patience for that, so I've ended up. I always just unless I've got a tree or something that I'm planting and I've got a specific mm. use for it, I just throw it into our compost heap and the worms love it. Mm. Or even into a worm farm. Mm. That, that works too. Mm. You are so pro worm farm. It's it's about like appropriate technology for for contextually relevant applications. Like if, say, you had like a 50-story building and each of those people had a worm farm on their veranda, that wouldn't be appropriate. Well, it could be, but if they each had a bakashi under their sink, which then fed into a bank of worm farms at the bottom, yeah, then that would make perfect sense. But if you go a little bit further out of town and you're in Titirangi and you've got heaps of space and maybe you're, you're looking to maybe grow a little bit more vegetables, then, then it's, it's, less, it's more about food production than waste minimization then neither of those solutions are going to be appropriate to your needs. You need a compost heap because you've got you've got three Cody trees on your property that are just constantly raining mulch and you need to be turning that into soil through that's most appropriate mechanism. So it's all about like who are you and where are you? And most of the clients that are picking up on our service these days are are like sort of socially aware um, businesses and offices who have like new their staff that are coming through represent this sort of millennial block who are not stupid they really give a shit and they're like what the hell are we doing around here that is different from business as usual like I had my eyes open in the global financial crisis and now we're heading headlong into a, another recession and like what's What's changed in between then? And the management are like, oh, crap. Like, how do I keep these people on board? Because there's all of these studies saying that, like, contemporary uh, workforce, like, they don't they don't get their identity from their job the way they used to. They're, they are quite happy um, with, like, a flexible working week. They don't uh, – they're much more resilient in terms of their identity that, and they can work from home and all these different things. We have and to be because like, we keep getting – fired and made redundant yeah. doing gig jobs and stuff <laughs> totally. it's out of necessity and kicked out of their homes and all of these things and so our generation even though my generation even though um people like to project that we're like a whole bunch of wussies like we've actually become really resilient um in the way that we have multiple income streams and are able to kind of different things but we're i think most of all is we're starting to have find our voice in terms of our integrity and our values mm. and not just be like, well, that's the way it is. It's like, no, nah, hold on. We can do better. And why are we not? And so if, if there's a company with like a sustainability policy and they're not acting on it, sometimes just dealing with like the waste in the office is just like a little stepping stone. It's like getting a win under the belt so the company culture can feel like it's actually doing something and it's not like this like sustainability is this end goal that's unattainable it's because all it is is just a spectrum it's a pathway and the more you do it the more like kind of people get in behind it and the more that pathway creates itself more as you go. Creates itself. Yeah. and if if there's people within an organization or within a family who might have an attitude of like oh what's that all about like you know, just resisting generally, like the fact that maybe future generations have have cause for concern. Um, it's it's about creating like a like a an experience that actually feels good for them. Because sometimes, if you come straight in with like the big sacrifices that people might have to make, that you just get you just get kind of like a bigoted sort of like hell no kind of thing i saw a really hilarious meme about it was like uh young people we're worried about climate change 
old people, um, we're worried about coronavirus. Young people, young people, we're worried about climate change. Can we take the bus more often? <laughs> old people, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, old people, we're worried about coronavirus. We need to like not go to work, not see our friends, like basically not do anything. And young people are like, yeah, okay. Because <laughs> 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 it's sort of like the same, it's the same ends and all these statistics about our response to coronavirus having a, a net positive impact on the environment. And my big question is like, cool, now we're here. Like, are we just kind of like riding this wave out so that we can then just go back to business as usual and just keep kind of like digging up the earth and, and killing it? Like, this is a massive opportunity for us to re redesign and reevaluate how we live our lives. But that's not present in the conversation. It's just all about like, hunker down, hold on tight, everything will go back to normal soon. And it's I like, totally agree with you. It yeah. might be a little bit early. For those conversations right. i think give give people their um their time their time to, to yeah. do their panicking and yeah yeah and, yeah and that's in processing yeah. well change is scary quite legitimately like our mm. incomes i mean all of us here in this room you know we're all affected and mm. it's um then then there's the trickle on effects of that mm. like i'm all for re- working out how we can do our life more sustainably and I really believe in that localization mm. uh, that's uh, for me I think the more and more it's just becoming the key thing that works everything through and you're talking earlier about the monoculture that we've become the in, mm. the global monoculture it's like if we start to really celebrate our diversity locally and then look at these really beautiful little hubs that we can it's like that is such a safe way comparatively safe way of existing and it, it's going to regenerate because that's the thing, like short term, there's always that. I mean, look at all those poor horse and cart manufacturers that went out of business when cars came on, you know. It's like short term, there's always pain. But it's like, actually, there is so much opportunity here for us regionally and locally to start to really grow and flourish. And this, uh, we've only got a couple of minutes before we need to wrap up because we've, we've got another episode to, to lay down today. Yeah. Um, what was the sort of social gathering? The regenerate parties. parties. Regenerate mm. events that you parties do. with a purpose. Can, can you tell us purpose. a little bit about those? Yeah, they're they're sweet. Like, um, do you have to be in Mount Monganui to experience what, these? What we're trying to do with the regenerate concept is create a a decentralized, scalable, replicable, replicable um, event that brings people brings communities together to celebrate but instead of that whole leave no trace thing which is common it's leave a trace leave a positive trace and that could be anything the way that we've been prototyping it is with tree planting but it could be like um building a a school hall or a new library or supporting a a community this or something here and what that kind of idea kind of came from is I spend a lot of time going to Burning Man and Kiwi Burn and Burning Seed and all these burner um, events around the world and what that is is we we get together and we pull our resources and we all cooperate and it's a big community event we build artwork and then we set it on fire and it's like this massive cathartic release and it's just crazy but you do kind of think like, wow, like what if we captured that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does that come collaboration to mind. and all that generosity of spirit and resources and everything and actually had a regenerative impact on this on this place. Whoa, that could be so big. And so we're just trying to start it with regenerate and we've had a, a couple of really successful ones. We've kind of documented it a bit. It's shareable. And now what we're looking to do is record the systems to empower anyone from anywhere in the world to run their own Regenerate event. So they pick up like the Regenerate here to how to handbook. Here's like a, you know, here's a media pack and here's all your like kind of collateral and everything. And just if there's a farmer who is starting to realize like, yeah, he's been grazing his cattle up against that river for like generations I would love to do something about that, but I don't quite know how, but there's this paddock over here that's real sweet for a party. So I have this value proposition to bring in like a thousand people to plant like 40,000 trees. 
because a thousand people can plant forty thousand trees in a weekend, and then at the end everyone gets together and celebrates, which kind of plugs into the justice system that I've seen working within indigenous communities where if someone is sort of like doing something bad, the community gets together and celebrates that and says, we recognize that that there's been a transgression and here are all of the beautiful things that we see in you and we celebrate you and your strength. We welcome you back into our thing instead of just constant isolation. And what I see being a real issue in New Zealand in particular right now is the divide between urban New Zealanders and rural New Zealanders. And urban New Zealanders are seeing rural New Zealanders as being like the bad guy. You're really kind of, you're part of the problem. And we're part of the solution because we're so progressive and we live in you know cities where we like do a poo into drinking water and then like ship it for thousands of miles and then like mix it with chemicals and then like evaporate it off and then dump it in the ocean. And it's like, that's just as much enriching our water as the runoff from the rivers are where there's no righteousness in this. And it's again, we just need to be able to meet together and come and cooperate with this. And when, when you're celebrating, when you have like a big long table of food and you've just been sweating all day planting trees, there's really not a lot of like fundamental differences, but in the way a human sees the world, that's going to, prevent them from connecting over that kai, over that that whanaungatanga and the, the manakitanga that comes with it. And then everyone's going to kind of experience that kotahitanga, that unity. And that is the kind of social and ecological healing that we need to see. And so the concept of Regenerate is something that, like, I don't own. I just want to see it potentially get offered up to the world as an effective sort of open source format for having a regenerative impact. Is there an online presence? Yeah, there's a sweet little video that we can link in the... We've cool. got it in the show Let's notes start. already. It's yeah, yeah. for the magic of podcasts. Yay. If you click on the show <laughs> notes, it's in there. Leo, I, I thought I was going to chat to you solely about worms and how cool they are, and we did, and I now love worms, but I feel like I've got this incredible worldview um, biosmosis uh, from you as well. So thank you so much for coming in Appreciate and um, sharing your time with us and sharing those amazing views and what you're doing mm. it's very cool and very inspiring so uh keep doing what you're doing right mm, kia ora leo thank you so much for coming in mm-hmm.